This episode of Recommended is sponsored by The 57 Bus by Dashka Slater. This beautifully crafted book started as an article in the New York Times Magazine. Its fast-paced writing makes it accessible for all readers, whether narrative nonfiction is in your wheelhouse or not. It's the gripping true story of an agender teen who was set on fire while riding a bus in Oakland, California, and the teen who started the fire. More about The 57 Bus by Dashka Slater later in the show. This is Recommended, where we talk to interesting people about their favorite books. This week we're joined by Andy Weir, who picked Small Gods by Terry Pratchett. I've always been a science fiction guy, so fantasy was kind of new to me. I never thought I would like it, but Discworld novels, Terry Pratchett is just such a fantastic writer, and his stuff is so funny. It's just, it has appeal to anyone who likes to laugh. And Louise Erdrich discussing The Death of the Heart by Elizabeth Bowen. What it really, really does so beautifully is talk about the growth of a young woman and her betrayal by an older woman. Andy Weir was a software engineer until the runaway success of his debut novel, The Martian, allowed him to pursue writing full-time. He's a lifelong space nerd, and his newest novel, Artemis, follows the adventures of Jazz Bashara, a smuggler on the moon. When she sees a chance to pull off the perfect crime, she also stumbles into a conspiracy for control of the city of Artemis itself. My name is Andy Weir, and Small Gods by Terry Pratchett is my recommended. Small Gods was first recommended to me by my uh, friend Dietrich all the way back in college. It was the first Terry Pratchett book that I ever read. It just completely hooked me. The thing I loved most about Small Gods was how it set up a convincing setting and genre that explains how gods work. They actually exist based on the belief of humans. And so gods are very interested in keeping as many humans as possible believing in them. I'd never seen like a kind of explanation of how gods work in a, in a genre, in a setting before. And I just thought it was fantastic. That led me into uh, just a massive binge of all the Terry Pratchett books in Discworld that had come out already, and then uh, just a lifelong fan from then on. I've reread Small Gods probably about five or six times in various intervals. That's very rare for me. Usually I don't reread books. I tend to be a one-and-done kind of book consumer. I usually reread it as part of a general Pratchett binge. Every five to ten years, I'll be like, ooh, I, it's been long enough that I've forgotten the details of a lot of these books. Time to go re-experience them. Pratchett's sense of humor definitely affected my writing style. Um, he, he taught me that basically any genre can be told in a funny way and still be a serious story, and it gets like ten times more entertaining. And so I, I, I really took that to heart. There's a lot of humor in The Martian. I've always loved science fiction, mainly because it tells you all the cool stuff that could happen in the future. As I went into uh, writing science fiction, I followed that same trend of like, hey, what kind of neat stuff might we have going on in the future? I guess I try to focus on the positive aspects of it because I try to be a positive-minded guy. And so I, 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 try to, I try to show the cool stuff that could happen rather than like dystopian misery. <laughs> I don't imagine I would ever write a fantasy story. I mean, I've had a few ideas here and there, but they always end up sci-fi. <laughs> One way or another, I, I always start with fantasy, and then I start working out, well, what are the exact details of how the magic works? And then I basically end up with my own physics model, and at that point, it's kind of science fiction again. I guess I'm not wired for writing fantasy, but, I'm, but I can enjoy fantasy written by others. <laughs> 
when I try to come up with a fantasy setting, I'm like, okay, well, there's magic and there are wizards and mages and witches and stuff. Okay, well, wait, how do they cat? What are the limits of the magic? Well, how does this work? Okay, where does, how do you maintain conservation of energy when someone launches a fireball? Okay, wait. Okay, but wait, how does this work? And why is it that some people can do it and other people can't? Is it a con, you know, is it a configuration of neurons? Are they affecting probabilities on some quantum level? And I just kind of start going down that rabbit hole and try to come up with a, yeah, a scientific analysis of how magic works. <laughs> I can read other people's fantasy. It doesn't bother me at all. It's a weird thing. In science fiction, if you say, oh, here's a ship that can travel faster than light, people say, like, how? Why? What is the mechanism by which that happens? But in fantasy, if someone says, here's a guy who can just snap his finger and send a fireball off to kill enemies, everyone's like, yeah, okay, sure. Some of my least favorite sci-fi tropes are the, well, it's fresh on my mind lately because I've got my next book coming out, which is about a city on the moon, are the explanations for why humans live on the moon or Mars or whatever. They always seem to fall short for me. There'll be something like, oh, we have a big, you know, we have thousands of people living on the moon because it turns out there's something valuable that can be mined there. And I'm like, well, first off, no, there isn't. Literally everything on the moon is on Earth. But second off, more importantly, if you want to mine the moon, send robots to do it. They're a lot easier to keep alive than humans, and nobody mines if they die. So why would you do that? And then the next explanation is often like, oh, well, there's uh, population problems on Earth, and so they go to the moon. I'm like, well, it is considerably easier to colonize uh, remote areas of Earth than it is to colonize the moon. So before you colonize the moon, you should colonize the Sahara, the ocean floor, Antarctica. I mean, literally every single location on Earth is easier to live on than any location on the moon. <laughs> and then the next one is like, oh, well, Earth's ecology got destroyed and we had to flee to the moon. I'm like, really? If you can build a moon base, just build that moon base on Earth and you're isolated from Earth's ecology, right? <laughs> and then there's Oh, political strife. Uh, we left because of political strife. We left because we were being oppressed. Well, if you can go to the moon, your oppressors can go there too. <laughs> and, <laughs> and if you have like $400 billion necessary to build a lunar society, you're not oppressed. I'm sorry. <laughs> As a writer, I get asked all the time, like for book recommendations to people who have an interest in fantasy. I always recommend Small Gods. Which is interesting because it's not the first book in the Discworld uh, series. The first book is is titled The Color of Magic. That's also very good, but I like Small Gods because I think it's a better book and it's also self-contained. You don't have to know anything about the Discworld setting or anything. You can come into it completely blank. And I, I think it's just a great entry point into the series or saga or whatever, even though it's not the first Pratchett does one thing that I really love, which is he has so many books that take place in the disc, but they're not a serial. They are different stories with different sets of characters. Sometimes uh, characters from one book will show up in another, and there are kind of sub-series within it. There's a bunch of books that all follow this one guy named Rincewind around. There's a bunch of other books that follow around these three witches. There's uh, other books that relate to the city watch in, in this one big town, this big city. He does have like kind of a s different series of books, but the overall thing is he made this overarching, consistent world that all these things take place in. And after you read 30 books <laughs> of it, you believe in this world. Like the world is so solid and so tangible to you. You know all these little details. 
I really loved that, and I took that to heart. Artemis, uh, which is my book that's coming out soon, as of the time we're recording this, takes place in a city on the moon, and I would love to write more books that take place in that same city, but not necessarily serials, like not necessarily with the same set of characters, other people doing other things in that city. Well, it depends on how well Artemis does. (laughs) People don't like it. I'm not writing sequels. (laughs) Thanks again to Andy Weir for joining us and recommending Terry Pratchett's Small Gods. His novel Artemis, published by Crown, is now available wherever books are sold. You can follow him on Twitter at Andy Weir Author. Fierce Reads is the exclusive sponsor of this season of Recommended, and they are hosting a huge giveaway for Recommended listeners. So go to FierceReadsRecommended.com to enter for a chance to win a bunch of great books. Included in that giveaway is The 57 Bus by Dashka Slater. This book approaches critical hot-button issues including gender identity, race, socioeconomic disparity, forgiveness, crime, and punishment in a thoughtful and compassionate way. Its subject matter makes for an excellent book club discussion. For fans of nonfiction like The Short and Tragic Life of Robert Peace, as well as true crime aficionados, The 57 Bus presents a riveting, in-depth account of a complex case that got national media attention. Our thanks to The 57 Bus and Dashka Slater for making Recommended possible. Louise Erdrich is the author of 15 novels, as well as volumes of poetry, children's books, short stories, and a memoir. Erdrich has received the Library of Congress Prize in American Fiction, the prestigious Penn Saul Bellow Award for Achievement in American Fiction, and the Dayton Literary Peace Prize. She lives in Minnesota with her daughters and is the owner of Birch Bark Books, a small independent bookstore. Her newest novel, Future Home of the Living God, follows a young woman fighting for her life and her unborn child against oppressive forces that manifest in the wake of a cataclysmic event. My name is Louise Erdrich, and The Death of the Heart by Elizabeth Bowen is my recommended. It may have been a recommendation from a bookseller or another writer, or maybe I just picked it out of a used book bin or a bookstore, because it's, it's a book that, my book has been republished in 1978, but let's see, the original was copyright was 1938, I have so many pieces of the book that really I've I've underlined my book is completely wrecked. It was a beautiful <laughs> it's a beautiful hardcover kind of but it's really wrecked because I have read it every few years for the past twenty years. So it was it's set in that time in London when the after effects of World War One are still being felt but there's this gathering storm that is going to become World War II. And yet there's a quiet calm about it. So Portia has been left to her brother in a will. And she's transported from Switzerland when her mother dies to London. And she's immediately plunged into this very cold, unemotional household. And as she's growing up, there is this sort of truth in her, this immense power in her that she doesn't know how to name. She doesn't know how to name her power, but it's the power of wanting to love and be loved. And she's in a loveless household. It starts with the revelation that the woman who, this girl, Portia, who's just 16, has come to stay with, Anna, has been reading her diary all along. 
Now, in this day and age, you know, we throw our feelings and thoughts, and young people do, right out into the text universe. I mean, it's out there, right? Everything is out there. But a written diary locked up one's special thoughts. I think it's, it's interesting to go back to a time when those thoughts were crushingly private. And as the book goes along, you find this young woman, Portia, finding her own feelings and beginning to name her own feelings. And that, I think, is universal. She searches to define herself and to find some emotional resonance in other people. There's a hilarious best friend who walks through the world like a goddess, and every time she makes a gesture, it seems to hang in the air. Lillian, and she, you know, she'll take off her hat. Then they had complicated hats. And she'll take it off in a long, flowing gesture and place it down precisely. And everything she does is done in a really theatrical way. So this is Portia's counterpoint in A Best Friend. And that's wonderful as well. Every single minor character is perfectly drawn. So that's why I love it. It's in some ways a perfect book of its time. But it is interesting to me to see how these, to see how it is that we still treat the written word like a written diary. It still feels like a tremendous exposure if someone was to find a written diary and read it. And yet we throw out all the same information practically. It's all online somewhere in some cloud. So, you know, it's all out there. As a young person, I'd had this same experience where I kept what I thought was, you know, I look back now and there's nothing in it that's at all upsetting. But when someone read it without my knowledge, I felt exposed in a way that it's hard to describe. I do keep diaries, but I'm very careful only to write positive things because um, I don't want someone to read it the way Anna reads Portia's diary and says, you know, she says, you've taped us. And I think that means in those days you figured us out in a way. And it's very unpleasant to them to be described and figured out in writing. Her writing really upsets everyone around her, her private writing. I have some other books that I read over and over, but this one is the one that I always return to somehow. Partly it's the betrayal. This very cold woman who she's very hard to read, and yet young Portia is has got her down perfectly in the diary, and she knows she's been discovered somehow by this young person. I really love the portrayal of not evil, but maybe this is an old word, but dastardly characters. I love the dastardly character. And she's so well done. I have a bookstore, so we always keep it in stock. And it's one that, you know, there's a note by it that says, please read this and why. And I do try to give it to people. I can, I think if I, I see a certain something in a person, then I will suggest it. 
But what that something is, it's hard to tell. I was just trying to think, what do I see in that person? And maybe it's a kind of openness because it's not a hard book to get into. It's not written in a complex, forbidding way at all. But it demands a willingness to explore those inchoate sort of unmanageable emotions that a young person has, that I remember I had. I still, we still all have them, but by little by little, we we learn to name and manage our feelings. You know, I read absolutely everything all over the map. I love W.J. G. Sebald, I love, um, right now I'm also reading the Australids and the Immigrants again. So I love W.G. Sebald, I love Chimamanda um, Adichie, and have read all of her work, and Lydia Davis, and Francine Prose. I don't have a real, you know, I don't have a niche for my reading. It can be almost anything can grab me, but I do have a a feeling for certain books, and right now, I've been I've been reading um, books that are about young people and their growth. I mean, I have a 16 year old daughter. That could be part of it. Somehow, this book it runs from teen literature into very adult literature because it's so precise, so beautiful, and sometimes it's uh, has a a hint of strangeness in it in, in some of the characterizations, and there's no horror, there's no murder, there's no there's nothing in it that drops you, you know, into some other um, dimension. It's all in this dimension of emotion, and each character who comes into the story figures it's put together like a puzzle an emotional puzzle, and each character assumes the weight of a moral weight because there's a moral question at the heart of this, and that is, does does this young person deserve to have her privacy and to have love in her life? Does she deserve to have her own emotions? You know, and that's a question for all time. Thanks again to Louise Erdrich for joining us and recommending The Death of the Heart by Elizabeth Bowen. Her novel, Future Home of the Living God, published by Harper, is now available wherever books are sold. Thanks to Fierce Reads for sponsoring the show. On behalf of The 57 Bus by Dashka Slater, be sure to check out the recommended Season 1 giveaway at fiercereadsrecommended.com. 